0: To turn your chairs around I want us to have a... father I just give you the gratitude of my heart for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus and I just thank you that I have something to share And that you've promised me that you will take complete control and give me everything that I need. Calm, words, wisdom, and insight into needs. And Father, I just, as much as I'm able, have surrendered totally to you. And I thank you for filling me with your spirit today. And I just thank you for what you're going to do. And praise your name for it and more than anything else I want everybody to know that I desire that Christ be magnified and glorified and not myself in Jesus name I pray amen I met the Lord Jesus Christ 12 years ago in a very personal way I've been a member of a church for 19 years And sometimes you wonder how it can be possible for a person to sit even in an evangelical church and certainly should have heard something through those years and not have any concept whatsoever of how a person is made right with God through Christ. I think really that you need to understand just a tad about my background and maybe that will give you some insight you need. But the churches are filled today with people who have never met Jesus. They're filled with people who are miserable in their Christian lives. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life, and that life in all its fullness. I've come to give you the abundant life, and that's a super abundance of life. And I did not have a super abundance of life. And so maybe somewhere along the way you will identify with something I've gone through, and maybe the Spirit of God can open your eyes today because I'm firmly convinced that I'm here for a reason and that you're here for a reason. And I think we would be foolish to think that everyone in this room is a born-again Christian. I would be willing to bet, if I were a betting person, that there's somebody here who needs To know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And so all I want is that you open your hearts, that you listen carefully, and that you not be so proud that you won't admit if you see somewhere through this that you were in the same boat and you realize that what you are to Jesus today. I want to go back to a little bit about my childhood. The way I was raised, the town I was raised in, and probably most of you will identify with that, I was raised in a small town in south-central Mississippi. And in this little town, I really thought, I honestly thought, that everybody who was good, and by good, I mean you did good things for your neighbors, and, and you didn't cuss, smoke to go with boys who do, or anything like that, I really thought that you were going to heaven, simply because you were good. And I thought anybody who was bad, and by bad, I mean the drunk, the prostitute, the homosexual. You know, I classified all these people in the bad. And I thought all those were going to hell. And that was the depth of my theological thinking. I was raised in a very strong uh, moral home, but it was not a Christ-centered home. My parents were Christians, but in this little town, everybody believed that you should be a silent witness. They really did. Anybody who spoke out about their their religious faith or Christ was a religious fanatic. And so you were encouraged to keep your mouth shut. If you had anything to say, don't say it, because the beautiful Christian is the silent Christian. And so everybody was so silent until nobody knew anything about anybody else and their faith in Christ. Well, uh, in my home, my mother was a very strong, domineering mother. And I loved her, and she died just a year ago. And I miss her. But she made many mistakes as far as... Raising us to believe that she was the answer to all our needs, all our problems. If we had anything, any need, we were to go to Mother. And I never even thought about going to God for anything. Mother was all in the world I needed. And I had such a sweet, precious, dear father. But it just seemed that it was so much easier to duck out and go hunting or fishing or something rather than assume or assert himself as the head of our home. It was like butting your head up a brick wall, you know, to try to take over and be the head of our home. And so Mother was my God all through my early formative years. And then the church, I think you need to know something about that. The church I attended was the kind of church that made you believe. That when you reached a certain age, you were accountable, and at that age, oh, by the time you were 11 or 12 at least, you should have done something about joining the church. And so never wanting to be the last one to do anything by the time I was, I don't remember, 11 or 12. I'm sure I wasn't any older than that because I would have died rather than been the last one. And so one day I was sitting in church, and I said to my friend Tippy, sitting by me, I said, "Tippy, I'll go down today if you will, and she said, okay. And up we went down that aisle. And when we got down, see, the only people you had, only new members you had were the children of those who were already members because nobody would have dared gone out into the highways and hedges to beat the bushes for Christ. So they were so glad to see a kid get big enough to come down so we could have a new member. And he was, he was sweet and precious, and he welcomed us into the fellowship. He extended the right hand of fellowship to us that day. We were no more born again. I really should say, I, I can only speak for myself. I've got to get back with Tippy one day and find out what she did that day, because I know what I did, and I know what was in my heart. And it had nothing to do with Christ. And when he extended the right hand of fellowship to um, us and all those people started coming down that aisle, I am here to tell you, it scared me to death. And I took off and ran out the side door and hid on the floorboard of the car. I really did, and it's still as plain today as it was then. And nobody could find me. That was what was so terrible. And they assumed that because I was so silly and I always into everything this for attention, And so by the time they got to the car and they found me, I never saw so many fingers pointing to me, and you wouldn't have believed. You have embarrassed us to death. You know, can't you ever do anything like a normal person? Haven't you got any more sense than to know that this is serious business when you join the church? And they just went on and on and on. And I just couldn't convince anybody that I was terrified. I wasn't doing it for attention. I couldn't have stood there and gone through that. But nobody had the insight to say, what's wrong with this kid? You know, there must be something that we need to discuss with the top, counsel with her. Nobody counseled with anybody back then. And so they just prepared me for the waters of baptism. And they saved up, you know, until they got a good group back then. They're going to kill, this is on tape, and you think I'm not going to be stoned if this ever gets back. But anyway, they saved up enough to put us all through, you know, and make good use of the baptismal waters. And when I, uh, by this time, Tippy's brother Dub had gone down too. And so Dub and Tippy and I were all in this group. And Dub was behind me. And it had such, and I'm just telling this so you can see what a lack of spiritual significance it was to us. Uh, Dub said behind me, Rita, when you get down there, I'm going to dive between your legs. <laughs> and I said, Oh, my soul, he'll probably do it. Knowing Dub like I did, I would not have been surprised. And when I got down there, he didn't do just that, but he didn't, fortunately. But I came out, and now I had done everything I needed to do. I had joined the church. I was a member in good standing. I had been baptized. But uh, there was never any kind of idea that was there was anything expected of me except to attend uh, regularly if I could. If I couldn't, that's okay, too, as long as you're good. And so I was a good little girl. I really was a silly but good. And all through my teenage years, I, I have looked back over it. And you're always told how, what problems teenagers have. I didn't have a, a care in the world of uh, two things. Let me just take that back. Two things. I had acne. And that, that's a real problem if you're a teenager. And then the other problem that I had was that I fell in love with Laddie Coker in the eighth grade. And he, didn't, he just didn't understand that this was something designed in heaven. And it took me three years, three years of solid running after him and maneuvering. And you never saw anybody go to such lengths in your life to get somebody to notice them. But he just didn't like me at all. And in the 11th grade, he finally got the message that God had designed this in heaven. I'd been trying to tell him that for three years. And finally, we fell. he fell in love with me too. And we uh, started going steady. And we went steady for two years. And Lady was in the Air Force by this time, and two years after we were going steady, um, we got married. And We had the big church wedding and all the trimmings, and it had no spiritual significance whatsoever. We were married in the church, but that's just where you got the prettiest weddings. <laughs> And we really subconsciously, I think, thought that if you said, I do, that meant I don't have to go to church anymore. And we went to Fort Worth, Texas, and the whole two years we were there, we went to church two times, and they were both to denominations we'd never heard of before, but somebody asked us to go, which might be good for us to remember. We did go if somebody asked us, invited us to go. And two times in those two years, and I'm I'm really serious, we had a marvelous, marvelous time, just to, the two of us together. We were everything we needed, and we just didn't think about God. Laddie was, was sure of his salvation and has never really questioned his salvation. But remember, he was raised in the same town where you never talked about it. So as a married couple, we never mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ. We never mentioned anything that was spiritual, but we were just so satisfied in ourselves until we just didn't need anything else. And then after he got out of the Air Force, by this time I was about four months pregnant. And then when uh, the sixth month came, it was the first crisis of my entire life. Twenty-one had a serious problem. Never had a crisis. And I had no idea how you coped with the crisis. What happened was, I was in the sixth month and everything going beautifully. I was going to be the most outstanding pregnant woman and have the best pregnancy of all, but it didn't work that way. I woke up one morning and I was swollen twice my size. I was just like a balloon. And we didn't know what had happened to me. And they rushed me to the doctor and found out that I had a severe case of toxemia overnight. And the albumin count was so high at that point, and the blood pressure so raised, until I was seriously ill before I knew what had happened. And they tried everything, and if you know anything about toxemia, there just are no real answers to this problem. You don't know what causes it, and you don't really know what to do for it. And so it finally ended up with complete bed rest. And at the end of uh, uh, the stay in the hospital, I thought I was getting better because nobody would tell me for fear I would get so anxious and nervous I would go into convulsions. Nobody would tell me how ill I was. And um, at the end of this, this week that I was there, I thought I was going home. And the doctor came in and said, we're going to have a birthday today, tears running down his face. And I said, whose? And he said, we're going to have to take the baby. Now, I knew that they had been in my room swarming around for days, but I just didn't understand. I was so stupid, I didn't understand what was happening. And what they were watching for was to give the baby as long as she could have, so she could live, and to give, uh, take the baby before I went into convulsions was the nitty gritty of it. And so I had the retina in the eyes had begun to hemorrhage, which meant that I was on the verge of convulsing. And he came in and he said, within 30 minutes, I've got to tell you what to prepare, but within 30 minutes, if, if you're going to live and the baby's going to live, we'll have to take the baby. And he said, here's what you'll have to do and see if you can do it. We'll have to take you up, and it'll only take six minutes to perform a cesarean section, but you'll have to be awake. There'll be no anesthetic. We can't even give you a shot to calm your nerves. You'll just simply have to go up and lie down and let us cut uh, you open and take the baby. Now, he did explain that they could sew Novocaine into the top layer of skin, but once they did that, they would have to work so fast until they couldn't deaden the uterus and they'd have to just open it and uh, take the baby without, you know, with me feeling everything. Now, the importance of this, it wasn't cruel, was that I had to respond with all my reflexes and all my organs to everything that was going on to give the baby a chance to live. And you can do anything when you're under enough pressure. Chicken, biggest chicken in the world, can do anything if you're told this is the only way your baby can live. So I said, okay, I can do it. And I went up and I did, went through it just, just beautifully. But I was so frightened, and I never once thought to call on God. I never even considered the fact that I needed to pray. Now all this time, Laddie was praying. My family was praying, but I never thought about it. And they had, you know, Laddie in this circumstance where he had to take his choice between the wife and the baby, and all this thing, these things that you hear about, see in movies, but you never think these things happen to you. And he grew through this, but still a, st- a silent witness. And all my family remained silent witnesses, and I remained so blind. And uh, the baby was in the hospital in an incubator for two and a half months. She weighed two pounds and 13 ounces, by the way. And she lived, and she's 20 today, and a perfect picture of health and beauty. So if you're going through anything like that, take it from me. They can work miracles through these things, and so much better if you have the Lord in your corner. But she stayed for two and a half months, and we were about to bring her home. It was the night before we were supposed to bring her home, and we had gone to bed early so we could get prepared for this premature spoiled baby, and we were going to get a good night's sleep. And at 10:30, the telephone rang. The pediatrician said, "Get down in a hurry! The baby has gone into a coma, and she can't live through the night. We're just sure that she's strangled or has pneumonia, and she won't be able to live through the night." Well, we rushed down. and by this time, I'm totally obsessed. I had asked for two and a half months, is she going to live? Is she going to be all right? And I could never get anything from anybody except, oh, she's doing as well as can be expected. You know, she's eating, she's sleeping, and all of this these things that didn't really mean a great deal to me. I wanted assurance that she was going to live. I didn't get that assurance. And by this time, I was sure that she would never live. I would never raise this child. And I sat on those concrete steps that night all night. All my family in different directions, each one of them, uh, by their testimony, were praying. I never thought to pray. I never once called on God for help. I was supposed to be a Christian, and I never once thought about God. And she pulled through that night, came out of the coma, and was in the incubator two more weeks. Then we got to bring her home. I was totally obsessed by this time. Uh, I would even dream, night after night, that I would go and, and find her at the bottom of a stairwell. I would lift her out of water, and always she was just this limp body. She was dead, and so I was convinced that she was not going to live. And it was the beginning of a nervous decline that almost sent me into a a place where maybe I couldn't have come out of it. But at that point, as if a, a sick baby, a nervous wife were not enough, Laddie was in college. And we ended up, to make a long story short, through college years, we ended up with a degree, an ulcer, a nervous wife, a sick baby, financial difficulties you would not believe what all we had on us after those four years were over. But we were so sure that when you got the degree, that was the beginning of life, see. Now we have all that garbage behind us and all that poverty, and now we can start having a salary and living like normal people and having fun. I feel sometimes when I share these, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, he went down so many avenues, you know, he went down so many avenues, and he had searched for it in wisdom and in pleasure and in the bottle and in everywhere else. And he finally discovered that it was all emptiness. It was all emptiness. There was nothing there. And so we ended up in Mobile. And while we were there, we just thought, by this time I was so nervous, I thought, well, I better get back in church. You know, I'm, maybe what's wrong with me is that I'm not going to church at all. So we just, uh, I started, I took my child, and Laddie, um had no joy in his Christian life whatsoever, but he wasn't too concerned about going to church, so he stayed at home. And I'd leave, I want you to know this, I would leave some morning just as lost as a goose, I didn't know it, and I'd say to him, I hope the Lord comes. Oh, your song. I hope the Lord comes while I'm gone and finds you at home. You know, I'm going to be in church, <laughs> but I would have been the one going to hell. Well, at the, during this period of time, we were so fortunate to find just the right friends. And just the right friends were the ones who were in the social circle, the ones who were um, members of the Mardi Gras uh, ball thing, you know, all of this. And we got all the invitations. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is life. This is wonderful. We were being invited to cocktail parties all the time and... and uh, three different doctors in three different towns that told me my nerves were all a result of not being able to relax. So they would say, three three different ones would say, all you need, Rita, is to take a cocktail every afternoon and, and just relax. That's all you need. Not one person all through this ever thought that what was wrong with me was spiritual. And so here we were right in the middle of all this beautiful, glamorous kind of stuff and the marvelous gowns and Sonia, and I was, I thought I was having a ball. I thought this was the answer. This was what made you happy. But the strange thing happened. Every time I'd go, I'd come home and there was the emptiness. There was something wrong. And I did not know what was wrong with me. And all during that period of time, in and out of a doctor's office. I mean, I stayed in a doctor's office. I had physical things wrong with me. I had mental and emotional things wrong with me. I had so much going against me. And yet all I could hear from anybody was, why are you like this? Why are you so nervous? Why are you falling apart at the seams? You've got the best husband in the world, and let me tell he is. He was then, and he is today. The very best husband in the whole world. And they'd say, you've got that, you've got the most beautiful, precious, sweet, adorable daughter, things, you've got personality, you've got talent, you've got all these things, why aren't you happy? And I didn't know. I just didn't know. I asked myself the same question. What in the world is wrong with you? Are you crazy? Why can't you be happy with all the things that you have? And there just was no answer. And when I was about 27 in the midst of all of this and finding no satisfaction down deep inside, having no understanding that there's a vacuum in each one of us that can only be satisfied by Christ, your husband can't do it, your parents can't do it, your friends can't do it, your church can't do it, it's God's place, and only God can satisfy that need. And I just didn't have any awareness of this. By the time I was about 27, I was, we were visiting in Brookhaven, and I was sitting across from a doctor, and he said, um, we just went down to say hello, and he said, what's that on your arm? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, it's got to come off today. And I said, you're kidding, we're just home visiting, what do you mean it's got to come off today? He said, you'll have to have, be operated on today. And they operated on my arm that day, and uh, this was a small town where you didn't have the um, capability of analyzing something like this. So we went back to Mobile, and they called Laddie at work and said, There's a room for Rita waiting tonight. Uh, Get her back to Brookhaven as soon as you can. She'll have to have uh, surgery on the arm again. It was melanoma cancer, and it's the fastest spreading kind. And the report says if it has not, if there's an outlying cell, you know, a cell, live cell in the outlying tissue, she'll be dead in two weeks. So this kind of scared us, you know. We thought, well, this is really weird, you know. And nervous as I was, all I needed now was to know I had the possibility of dying from cancer so we went rushed back home and i couldn't show my feelings because everybody was looking at me like i was deaf you know like i was going to die any minute and so i kept my emotions to myself and that almost killed me but i went through this and the doctor said very emphatically Rita, that we got it all there's nothing else and i you know if you're like i was if you're a nervous wreck and a neurotic and a uh hypochondriac and all of these things you're not going to believe somebody when they tell you there's nothing left there i was sure it was still there it was all over i was going to die my baby was going to die we were a mess i mean we were a mess and so i went back to mobile now just to go absolutely downhill fast so sure that everything in the world was working against me and very little working for me during this period of time, I had thought back and thought, well, you know, I, do, I am relaxed when I take a drink. And by this time, I, would, I had got reached a point where I would mix the cocktail in the evening before Lady would get home just, just to relax. And then I looked around and saw all the alcoholism in my family, and I thought, oh, you, you pitiful thing, you know you want to join those ranks? Surely I had just enough sense left to know that that wasn't the answer. But that's what I thought for a a little while, I thought for just a little while that that would be how I could take care of that situation. And I can just assure you that that's not where the answer is. It's so temporary. Oh, it may relax you for a minute, but you've still got to face those problems and those neuroses when you come out of that and you're just worse off than you were before. And so that didn't work. Now, during this period of time, I was still constantly in a doctor's office. I was taking something like 20 pills a day. I lived on pills. I got up in the morning and I took a pill to get me out of bed. And that was hard. And then uh, after I did that, I took Aventil to lift me out of depression. I took tranquil. Once I was lifted out of the depression, I needed to be calmed down. And then I'd take a couple of things to give me energy. And then I'd have to take something to knock me back out that night. And by the time I had finished that day, I had done very little except stuff pills into my mouth. And none of them, none of them did any good. And they couldn't understand this. They just could not understand why something wasn't getting through to me, why somehow I wasn't seeing what was happening to me. And so I finally end up sitting across from the doctor and he said, Rita, and he was trying his very best at this point to shock me out of what I was going, about to go through or going off the deep end. He said, don't you love Laddie and Debbie? And I said, of course I do. And he said, well, honey, you better get yourself straightened out in a hurry, because there is absolutely nothing left for us to do except to commit you to a mental institution. We've reached that point. Nothing's worked for you. And now we're just, we are just—we have nothing else left to do except to commit you. Well, the strange thing about it, there we were so many people in this little small town who ended up in institutions, and you never saw any of them help, so I knew that wasn't going to work. And I was so frightened over the prospect of this until I went back uh, then and just sank into a deep depression, so just another anxiety. Another tension. I had to now worry about the fact that I wasn't going to have Laddie and anymore. And there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, if there was one thing I was sure of, it was that I couldn't do anything about what was happening to me at that particular time. And so I sank into a very deep depression. And I cried. I started crying. And I could not quit crying. And I cried for five days and five nights. I wish oh, you could know the, the nights that I would go to bed with a vice. It was just like a vice just screwed in on my head. and I had no release from pressure for years, just terrible pressure. And so many nights I would be in such miserable, miserable state until I would just think, oh, if I could just go to sleep and never wake up. You know, if I just didn't have to wake up another morning, if I could just die in my sleep and never have to wake up, then that would be uh, what I would desire and I had no idea what I was even thinking at that point because then I would have again died and gone to hell. I was lost. And so at the end of the fifth day I had cried steadily. I could not cope with a single thing or a single day. And I was sitting there in just tears rolling. Everybody so concerned about me but nobody knowing what to do for me. And somehow some way there was a pamphlet in that room by, on the table by the chair I was sitting in. And I still to this good day don't know how I got there because we were not accustomed to having religious literature lying around our house. You couldn't have even found a Bible unless you had gone looking for it, really looking for it. And so I picked this up and crying my heart out, I opened it up and I don't know whether you've ever had this happen to you or not, but every bit of the print except the words of Jesus faded away. And there were some words that he had spoken that literally were in all capital dark black letters just almost jumping off that page. And you see, that had to happen. I was not in any state just to sit and read something. It had to do that. It had to jump off the pages at me. And it was where Jesus said, Come unto me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, I thought you got to be kidding. I mean, you got to be kidding. He just said... In this little pamphlet he said he would give me rest best any more than i needed it that day and i thought well that's in a little pamphlet you know i wonder if the bible says that so i went and looked up a bible and i opened it up to matthew 11 28 through 30 and sure enough he said it again he said come unto me you've gone to everybody else you've depended on everybody else You're a mother." Your father, your husband, you've depended on everybody and everything, but you have never once come to me. Come unto me. You, Rita, you're so heavy laden, you're so burdened down. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Well, I didn't know how to pray. If I had made anything else clear to you, I had gone through some real crises. I had never prayed. I don't even remember ever praying. And that day, not knowing how to pray, God honored the simple thing that I did. I literally fell on my knees before God. And I said, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what I'm supposed to say to you. But all I know is that if you really mean it, and you can do anything with the mess I've made, you can have it. And it was total deliverance in an instant i mean in an instant all of the the pressure and the tension and the anxiety was removed and in an instant i was so filled with love and joy and peace and an excitement i could not explain to you in a million years except that it thrills me from my head to my toes every time i think about it but it was not a one-time experience. This has been a lasting thing. It's been something that he's renewed in me daily. But that was the first time in my life I had ever known that kind of peace. And I remember saying to him, and I know sometimes when I think back on it, he must've thought, oh boy, you know, I knew this was a hopeless one I lost to begin with. But um, she's still so young and so immature and so much to teach her. But I remember saying to him, if you've got something you want me to do, tell me real loud. You know, holler because I'm hard of hearing and I'm, you know, I'm so dense and so dumb. Just, just holler real loud. Bang me over the head. Let me know what you want me to do and I'll do anything, anything that you want me to do. And that was 12 years ago. And the strangest thing happened. Would you believe the first person I got to share this with was you guessed it, Laddie Laddie called from work, and he had left that morning, and he was so i guess more so that day than any other day he was so concerned that some you know that somewhere I had to get off this thing, and that something was going to happen to me if i didn 't and he called and he said, "Honey, are you okay i 'm just calling to check on you." Well, don't you know he thought I had gone bananas for sure? I said, Oh, you don't have to worry about me anymore. (laughs) You you don't have to worry about me anymore. I've found what I've been looking for. I've found what it's all been about. I've found out what was making me nervous. I know now what I have to do, and I have the most tremendous peace all through me mind, heart, and soul. And he said, you do? <laughs> Are you sure? When he got home, you know, I think the greatest manifestation of a born-again experience is that excitement that makes you want to share it with the world. I think that's what he expects from us as born-again Christians. And I was so excited. I was literally running up, telling him what had happened, sharing with them what had happened. I had not been able to talk to anybody without shaking out of my chair for years. And here I was running up and down the street saying, gosh, you know what happened? Do you know Jesus said, I didn't know what that verse of Scripture was. <laughs> you know Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest? Well, that was a neighborhood full of people who needed the rest of Christ. And they had never seen anything like this before. We had spent all the time I'd lived in that house, we had spent every waking minute either playing bridge or sitting over a table talking about whomever wasn't there. We were the biggest gossips you have ever seen in your whole life. And the strangest thing happened now. When we got together, we talked about Jesus. And we said, you know, we were so dumb, we found this verse in Scripture that said, if two or three gathered together, I'll be with you and I'll teach you. Well, we were just so silly, we believed that. So we said, you know what we need to do? I wanted to know everything I could know about Jesus. I wanted I was so starved, so hungry, and I wanted to know every single thing that he had recorded in his word and so we took we had to go buy bibles Most of us, we didn't even have any and we started uh on monday night getting together and we would just trust the lord to show us things from the pages of scripture and you know he did we didn't have we had a, no guide we didn't even have a guide well we had the holy spirit But we didn't have a person in that whole group who really knew anything about teaching. And yet we had uh, uh, just a variety of denominations. We had some who were not professing Christians at all. And before this was over, the Lord had blessed that in such a miraculous way. We had people saved. We had one uh, daughter of a minister who said, I have never known Christ in a personal way. So that whole neighborhood was turned upside down. And a preacher said, you know, if the Lord ever gets the chief gossip, he was talking about me. If the Lord ever gets the chief chief gossip, he can really do miraculous things in a neighborhood. And I said, he sure can. He really can. And then I got, if you you can believe all that, you can believe this. Would you believe that I was invited to a Bible study? And these were people who knew what they were talking about. And the first book I got into, I didn't really, I was just there drinking in things, was Daniel... And they were talking 483 years. And this one a week, it was seven, you know, that one a day, it was seven days. And that one a week, it was, oh, I was sitting there thinking, Lord, you're going to have to intervene because I'm so stupid. You know, I'll never understand all of this. But I was so thrilled. My birthday came up about a, uh, within that month. And would you believe that I got three Bibles? <laughs> it, had, it had really taken hold. And everybody knew what I needed and everybody knew what I wanted. And since then, the, the miracle of the whole thing has been what He's done for me, where I didn't love anybody except myself and my husband and my child. I had no love for anybody else, and I knew that. He took that, and He made me love people in such a rare kind of way. I would not have given a child the time of day. And now I spend my life working with children working with young people. So see, he takes you and he transforms you. He'll transform you and he'll take and he'll make out of you what you never dreamed you could do. I used to um, faint if you called on me to read a verse of Scripture in a Sunday school class. In fact, I would go up and tell the teacher uh, I would never come back again if she called on me to read a verse. If she if she ever dared call on me to pray, I'd get them walk out right then and just never call on me to answer a question or anything like that. And they would usually honor this. But um, after this, the first, one of the first things that he really laid on my heart was, Rita, I want you to teach. I really want you to teach. So see, all I'm saying that for is just to say, don't ever close any door. Don't ever say, well, this is impossible for me to do because that's the thing he wants to do, the impossible, so that you will never for one minute forget that it's not his help. I would never be up here in front of you in my natural strength, never. But the strangest thing in the world is that he's so sufficient for all our needs and he'll do the impossible through you. I'll never have any problem giving him the praise for standing up here and sharing this with you. See, I know I couldn't do it. So what I want to do now is to share just simply with you the fact that that I'm no special person, I'm no uh, special child of his any more than anybody else. He has not done one thing more for me than he wants to do for everybody. And so going on that assumption, if we really believe that's true, I want us to have a prayer. And if there is that somebody here today... Just one somebody, maybe, who has never had this kind of personal encounter with Christ. And believe me, the scripture teaches that this is necessary to be born again. You must come face to face with him. You must hear his voice. And that's where the word comes in. You must respond. And the scripture says, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God. And there's no other way to get to the Father except through the Son. And you do that by receiving Him as your personal Lord and Savior. And then just be so obedient to anything He wants you to do. That's the key to the victorious Christian life. So I want us to have a prayer. I want to thank Him right now for what He's done in giving me the peace that I've had while I shared this. And I want to word a prayer for you. And if there is someone like this, if you were just in, in your own hearts, God knows our hearts, and if you're just in your own heart, repeat this prayer after me, receiving Christ as your personal Savior. And then when we get through with the prayer, I want all of you to do something for me. I want you to take your name tags off. And I want on the back of it, whether you've been born again or whether you haven't, if you have received christ today i want you to put that on the back of your name tag just simply say i prayed and received christ as my personal savior today and those of you who are already born again oh you don't know how much i would appreciate just a word from you a word of encouragement uh just something that you might like to say to christian women's club to someone here today so would you just all of you after we pray take your name tags off and write some sort of note to me. I would just appreciate it so much. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for being faithful once again to all the promises that you've given to me. And I just, just praise your name for being so sufficient. And I just don't even know why you do it, but I just am not going to spend any time asking you any questions. I'm just going to keep on praising you for it. And Father, right now, I just really pray that if you've touched somebody's heart, that they will pray this prayer after me. And I know you'll hear it. And I know you'll be faithful to what you've said. To as many as receive the Son, you'll give them the power to become sons of yours, heirs to the kingdom, and that you'll fill us all with your Holy Spirit. If That's what we'll allow you to do. So now I I just want them to... Take seriously this prayer of invitation and just let you have complete control of hearts is all we desire. Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I confess that I'm an absolute failure at running my own life. I ask you the very best I know how to forgive my sins to cleanse me and make me white as snow. And I thank you that you forget those and wash them completely away in the blood of your son. And now I just ask you to come in and to just give me all that I need in the way of being a child of yours. Save me today is my prayer. And then help me to be obedient to you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. While you're writing on the back of your name tags, and I do hope you'll do that, I want to just uh, point out this painting. This is my experience on canvas. And it's uh, one of the times where I know that it was thoroughly inspired of God. And so if you have a chance, come look at it and perhaps you'll see yourself If you want to know where I am, that little creature at the foot of the cross is me. And you may want to identify uh, in your own experience with that person. Thank you very much.